Tell me what you see. I see white. Ceramic tiles blanket the floor, walls, and countertops. Well-dressed people queue, staring at their phones. More people sit at the cafe tables, ringing the glass storefront, while the smell of coffee and pastries fills the air. Soft jazz music lurks behind the hissing of steam from espresso machines, and every few minutes, another order number rings throughout the room. Where am I? Tate Coffee Shop. I mean, the number one takeaway, for me at least in, in my research, is to try to unpack the layers around the complexity of gender and gender performance because um, a large part of the Trans Day of Remembrance is to consider the different layers of precarity and actual danger, not just discomfort, because we think a lot about, and our conversations have been a lot about comfort inhabiting space, this takes it to a new layer where it isn't just about can you be comfortable in a space, but can you be safe? Can you survive in a space? Welcome to What Builds Us, a podcast that explores the ways our built environment affects our emotions, experiences, and our day-to-day lives. I'm Chantel. And I'm Brian, and this week we're talking about the role that race and gender play in our experience of built environment. So throughout the progression of the season, we've moved from a really small scale, talking about the mind and how you interpret space. And then we move up to personal space and how you understand the space around you, like your home. And then we go into public space and the space between buildings and actual buildings and all these things. And now we're kind of stepping out of that realm and talking more about these invisible social experiences that we have with space and the relationship between architecture and them. Yeah, they kind of no longer have a specific scale, but are kind of so all-encompassing they happen at lots of lots of different moments. Yeah, because if you think about it, you know, you're one scale, you're your own individual person, you experience space, but you also have to think about the size of buildings and the scale of that and the scale of you with a bunch of other people in a space and like how society affects all of that and how that derives and drives our environments and whatnot. So there's a lot of different components in it. So we're kind of blowing the idea of scale up at this point. So I'm really excited to have this conversation. I think the role of race and gender and kind of the study of those effects in general are certainly not something that come up in most architectural educations and really even as part of uh, kind of mainstream architectural discourse. But there's something that's really important, so I'm, I'm excited to learn more. Yeah, and I don't think it's common for a lot of people to connect the two. This idea that all of space is neutral and that architecture doesn't have that much of an effect on us, which is a stigma that both of us are trying to break with this podcast. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's not real. Like Places do have a history. The design of them have a history. They're coming from someone, like Katrina was saying in one of our episodes, there's mm-hmm. a bias that's implicit based off who's designing what and then who is experiencing it. And all of that is an effect is a factor and is something that's just important to look at and understand. So because we're certainly not experts in this topic, we definitely needed to bring someone in. And I'm so glad, Chantel, that you knew someone already. And I'm ex- 
excited to hear about your discussion. Yeah, so Carolyn Light is a professor at Harvard University, and I reached out to her during my thesis about two years ago when I first started research and trying to bring in these ideas of gender and sexuality and their effect in relationship with architecture and how the two kind of come together because it's a conversation that's not really talked about too much. So we sat down to talk, and I'm going to let her introduce herself a little bit more. So do you want me to start by introducing myself and saying who I am? Yeah, yep, that would be great. Okay, cool. <laughs> My name is Caroline Light. I'm the Director of Undergraduate Studies here at Harvard's Program in Studies of Women, Gender, and Sexuality. Um, my background is in United States history. I have a PhD in U.S. history with emphases in gender and ethnic studies. So cool. <laughs> <laughs> it is pretty cool. Um, pretty cool. I know. Yeah. I like it. I own it. It's great. Yeah, so I first met you when I was working on my thesis, and the main thing that I was focusing on was the ways that hierarchy exists basically in society and then through architecture that can kind of be implied through the spaces that we occupy and the way that they're designed and who they're for. And, and so the first question that I guess I have that I feel like you could probably vamp on and explain how you've seen it. So how our architecture reflects the kinds of social hierarchies that are embedded in our social structures. Yeah, yeah you know, Chantal, one of the really cool things, I thought one of the brilliant things that you did in your thesis was emphasize comfort and discomfort and, mm -hmm. and, and materialize a sense of discomfort, but in a way that's really productive in questioning and destabilizing some of those social hierarchies. So like you played with visibility, transparency, yeah. partial visibility, invisibility, <laughs> because the structure you created makes it difficult, well, makes it impossible for people who are in it to see each other except at particular moments. And yeah. there's a sense where they have to make a deliberate choice of whether they're going to make themselves visible or not. So I feel like you really did a great job materializing some of those hierarchies, but like social hierarchies that get embedded into our everyday structures, whether we're talking about office buildings or um, retail spaces or public parks or public streets. We, we tend to presume a sense of the norm as being a white norm, um, a masculine norm, a set of principles of design around heteromasculinity, mm -hmm. cis masculinity, um, and and whiteness. And so these different hierarchical structures, modes of thinking about what constitutes the norm and what constitutes normative citizenship, maybe it's not shocking that those should be embedded in some of the structures that we inhabit, you know, whether we're shopping for groceries or walking around a museum or just trying to spend some leisure time in a public park. Um, yeah. There are certain kinds of bodies that are treated as the norm, yeah. that are invited to be comfortable and to relax in certain spaces. And there are others that are not given that same attention to their physical needs. And one, an, an obvious point about this would be able-bodiedness. Yeah. So when people aren't able to navigate space in the same way that an able-bodied person might be, we, we tend not really to take into consideration what it's like, for instance, for um, a person in a wheelchair to try to 
get down the street or cross the street, you know? So some of these things that we kind of take for granted or that are normalized in our culture are things that we're kind of taught not to think about. Caroline brings up a great point about the role of accessibility and what that means to designers, but also to people just in the built environment. I know for sure I've approached accessibility in design projects before as an afterthought. It's something that you go, oh my God, I have this great entry sequence and it relies on a person being able to climb stairs. Ugh, now I have to add a ramp to it or something where it really shouldn't be. It's something that can be well integrated into the design process, something that maybe you don't even notice as a user, but makes a big change on how people who need to use that experience the built environment. Yeah, and that's why I think it's important moving forward, which is something that I wish I knew or, or was more aware of back in the beginning of design school, is thinking about the bodies that are different from your body while you're designing, like at the way at the beginning of the design process and being like, how can I integrate these different approaches and methods of occupying and moving through your space from the beginning and not something that's just stapled on. Something that really emphasizes the importance of the American Dis with Disabilities Act is, which is the big federal law that brought all this to the forefront, is the fact that it's civil rights legislation. All the other kind of regulations that guide what buildings look like and how you build them are building code. The ADA is, is civil rights in the same way that you're protected from discrimination and you're allowed to vote. It's it's on that level with uh, civil protections. Yeah. They're like an afterthought. It's kind of like, okay, well, first think about your general design of the building or structure, whatever you're building, and then think about compliance. So it's not about, it's not about starting from uh, inclusion. It's not about starting from the goal of en enabling all different types of bodies to inhabit a space. It's like build your design first from yeah. your ablest standpoint and then yeah. speckle on all of these accommodations yeah. afterwards. Yeah, yeah. And I think that that kind of revolves around this idea of intent. So, like, how do you think intent? comes into play a lot. I mean, the way that I think about intent, I think that's it's really important to consider that like what what are the designer's intent when she's building something. I I think intent can't be separated from embodiment though, and experiential yeah. embodiment. So like the the person who's building, the person who's designing is a person who inevitably is caught within these different interlocking structures of mm -hmm. which are hierarchical. So no matter who you are, um, for instance, whether you're um, whether you're gendered female, male, or gender nonconforming, you're still occupying this world, this space, as a gendered being who yeah. who is looked upon as being of a particular kind of gender, even if they're resistant to the gender binary. Yeah. Um, so that and and one's similarly one's race identity how how one um, performs one's race how one is identified as a white person or a non-white person in a white supremacist social structure is going to then influence their intent so it's this embodied experience um, of one's own experience with na these navigating these various hierarchies being positioned in multiple ways in relationship to power structures mm -hmm. that's always going to influence one's intent no matter how much 
a person tries uh, to be inclusive, for instance, um, I, I think you're still going to be in many ways dependent uh, on your own personal embodied experience of inhabiting different spaces. Thinking back to episode seven, I think Katrina brought up a really good point towards the end of our conversation about how your identity has a bias just because you know what's comfortable for you. So you're inherently leaning towards that regardless. So thinking about that moving forward, whether or not you're the designer or you're a lawyer or you're going to school or what occupying space, thinking about your performance with your identity in that space, whether or not that's easy for you, if that's hard for you, how that changes depending on the space, all of those are really important questions to really think about and ask yourself as you're navigating the space around you because when you start thinking about it, it starts like bringing up more questions and more questions and more questions and like really getting you to look at your space differently. One of the essays that I referenced a lot in my thesis is called The Tyranny of Gender, written by Petra L. Doan, who is an urbanist and city planner who's also transgender and talks a lot about how their identity and relationship with space has changed post and pre-transition um, and how their relationship with the other people and what they consider to be the audience in a lot of public space changed depending on how they were performing their gender or what people were expecting from them based off of their gender performance at a time or not. So she's written and done a lot of work on the relationship between these queer and sexuality studies with the built environment and how our cities are designed. And you can read those full essays on our blog, but what I really like about that is, is because of my identity, that, that role of being the person who's scrutinized is not something I've particularly ever experienced in public space, but what comes to mind is the idea of a bully. There's someone that I think everyone can understand as, as performing uh, in space based on their audience. What a bully is like one-on-one -on -one versus, you know, when they have a big crowd around them totally changes. So you can really understand how at, I think, a much deeper and more impactful level, the gender that you present would, would change how you act. Yeah, and she writes so well about her experience changing based off of how it is that she's performing at different parts of her life and how it she has witnessed and experienced her relationship with the world and the other people experiencing these spaces with her change. I need to read this. Yeah, It sounds really cool. incredible because one of the things that sort of happens when we talk, and today, by the way, I think is the Transgender Day of Remembrance. So it's like, oh. it's November 20th. Yeah, so this is a yeah, day yeah. like where we really should, those of us who are cis or binary or whatever to reflect on the lives and experiences of, of trans people and also a subset of trans people are gender non-conforming yeah. people or people who are in the midst of transition because um, we can't presume that all trans people are, are. able to pass in yeah. all spaces in all moments so it's so multi-layered and complex and the number one takeaway for me at least in in my research as a cis hetero appearing white woman etc mm -hmm. is to try to unpack the layers around the complexity of gender and gender performance yeah. um, when I think about my work um, and when I think about the way I occupy space because um, a large part of the trans day of remembrance is to consider the different layers of precarity and actual danger, not just discomfort, because we think a lot about, and our conversations have been a lot about comfort inhabiting space, 
this takes it to a new layer where it isn't just about can you be comfortable in a space but can you be safe can you survive in a space so a parking garage for instance becomes a place where a trans feminine person who might in a particular moment be recognized as trans rather than cis feminine might be likely to be attacked unless there's a space for people to be watching and hopefully policing against that kind of violence. Yeah. And I think that that was a big thing. Yeah. And that was um, a big thing that I was trying to explore. My thesis was like my first approach, which was part of like my difficulty throughout the whole thing. My first approach was like, oh, how do we design a space that's comfortable for everyone? And then a lot of the discussions wound up being drawn down a path of, oh, well, I don't, understand why you would be uncomfortable so then I had to wind up changing my design to be something that almost like started out making people uncomfortable and then forcing them to create their own comfort and like that very conscious choice of participation Mm -hmm. was put in the hands of every user who occupied it and I feel like that's something because one of the conversations that I find difficult throughout all of these aspects of like gendered architecture, when I bring sexuality into architecture, the hump that's hard for a lot of people to get over is understanding how the two come into play with one another. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I feel like it is what you were just saying, like that why is it scary for some people to occupy some of these very normal spaces, like a grocery mm-hmm. store or park? Like there's a queer bar in um, Jamaica Plain that a lot of people go to, and at least three times a year, one of my friends gets egged in line. It's still yeah. scary. I don't have the statistics off the top of my head, but yeah. trans feminine people of color remain so incredibly more likely to be not just targeted, but actually killed. So what you're saying about it's 2018, and yet still people will see a queer bar and it's and the people waiting outside the queer bar or standing outside the queer bar as targets yeah. is, you know, it is mind-blowingly awful. It's true. Mm-hmm. We, we, we live in a nation, maybe even more so now, where people feel emboldened um, to target people who don't conform to certain kinds of recognizable norms. Yeah. Um, and, and definitely um, I see that in the statistics around who's yeah. most likely to be murdered. Yeah. Um, right by civilians and police yeah. uh, together. So, so yeah. The so there's all these different kinds of ways of thinking about space and intent, and I think there's this tension between the sort of comfort level. So how does one generate a kind of comfort letter level through through their space that might translate into something that we might call safety mm-hmm. for people who occupy sometimes multiple minoritized subject positions. So for non-binary people of color, for um, non-able-bodied, whatever that means, Mm -hmm. um, people, for people confined to a wheelchair, for instance, um, what does it mean to kind of turn design on its head Mm -hmm. and imagine how to reinvent public space and and also private spaces, homes, right? Um, Museums sometimes private museums, um, also retail space, because one one thing that's also defining of late modernity is the way in which so many of us are identified as consumers, mm-hmm. first and foremost. Um, we inhabit these consumer spaces, and 
those spaces are not neutrally designed at all. Mm -hmm. um, if they're made accessible, it's like you said before, it's an afterthought to be in compliance with ADA rather yeah. than we want to make this space fully inclusive and comfortable yeah. for all types of bodies to inhabit, right? So. Um, Certainly, in late modernity, we're not doing a very good job of formulating our spaces to accommodate multiple types of identity. So back in episode five, we talked a lot when we went to the public library about how that ornate, neoclassical, kind of overwrought, very formal building often gave the public people who entered it a feeling that they might not belong or that they might have to act a certain way because of the architecture and the impact and the assumptions that went along with it. Yeah, like a lot of people feeling like a space that's designed like that isn't for them. A lot of people going in and being like, there's no way that this is actually public and that I actually am free to just roam around this however I want. But you are. And so that gives a very kind of jarring feeling when you first go in. You're like, no way. But it's actually really cool. And so I think it's easy to understand how much like those layers of assumption and cultural knowledge about what that building type means could so easily to apply it to your idea of gender in a space. Mm -hmm. um, whenever I have these conversations with people, especially throughout my thesis, was like kind of pointing out different ways that retail space was targeted towards one maybe not even like an identity but one feeling towards another yes. so I was yes. working in um a Warby Parker at the time throughout my thesis and the whole entire room is filled with mirrors it's like really high ceilings it's really bright it's like a lot of white walls and every pair of glass the room was just lined with glasses and it was like white marble white floors white walls and then a bunch of lights and a bunch of mirrors the room is wildly uncomfortable i was like and from a design standpoint i was like standing in this space all day was like crippling to me because everybody who would walk in would be like this space is so cool like wow and i was like yeah it's supposed to be very eye-catching. It's supposed to draw you in. It's supposed to be shiny. I was like, once you're in there for like 45 minutes to an hour, you're sort of like, I want to leave this space now. I kind of want to go somewhere else. But that's the idea behind it, right? It's supposed to draw you in, give you, make you excited to look around and be there, but it's not supposed to be someplace that you feel comfortable to sit and lay down and spend a day. We're somewhere like, do you know, um, like free people, the store free people yes, or like yes. anthropology or something it's like very cozy like cozy yeah and yeah. like these and comfy couches yeah and you like are way more inclined to go in there because you think it's like a home mm -hmm. and that was something that we had talked about before too right, is like this idea right. of like who is it that that's calling in who's it for like but also like who's it for and how is it scripting their behavior so mm. like what you were just saying about yeah. Warby Parker I have to confess I've never actually been in one but the way you described it I can picture it perfectly yeah. and how interesting that it's also their commodity is eyeglasses yeah. so like the whole the 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 very um deliberate effort to create a place of excessive visibility mm -hmm. with multiple mirrors and reflective spaces and the bright white and the tall ceilings. It sounds like 
it's just an overwhelming space of of enhanced visibility mm-hmm. that like probably as a worker there you're like I am over this place probably <laughs> incredibly exhausting to inhabit yeah. that space for an entire workday whereas another like free people or um, anthropology or urban outfitters like th- these places are very deliberately created to feel kind of like someone's cozy or shabby chic found object furnished uh, family room and yet I can feel that there's also another sort of deliberate curation of the population that's being invited to come in and feel comfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not everybody. It's th- those products, for instance, just in anthropology, for instance, it's so expensive. There's, this is not a place that's designed for everybody to come and shop and consume and feel comfortable. It's carefully designed to be um, labyrinthine. So like there's multi-level, yeah. so it's hard to navigate. I don't know how a person who would be, say, wheelchair-bound or on crutches, stuff. it's mm-hmm. very hard to get from one part of it to another. Um, and then it's also, it smells. They've got their candles burning, and so they've got a very special scent that gets like associated with it. Completely mm-hmm. bombarded. All And then there's it's tactile, too. The objects are inviting you to touch them. All the felted baubles. You, you feel, as a consumer there, as an elite consumer, mm-hmm. specifically geared towards women, I would say middle-aged women, so I'm thinking probably I'm about their target demographic there. Yeah. You are invited to come in to imagine how these objects would furnish your own home and also to feel like this is a space for you. Yeah. Um, yeah, So, but it's but I think it's also exclusionary. So when I say that it's right. inclusive and meant to be comfortable for a certain population, I also want to be mindful with that, what that means in terms of excluding other populations of people. So thinking back to episode two, when I talked about the Playboy penthouse and its effect on how we see ourselves in a home and other people in the home and the expectation of the open floor plan and what that means and who it's for and why you should want it. I revisited that idea with Carolyn Light as we talked more about those concepts of like authority and demand and privacy and security in the home. Yeah, yeah, no, I remember and I I love there I think we read the same article about the the sort of scriptive element mm-hmm. of the the Playboy penthouse mm-hmm. and and it was also about if if I remember correctly there's a deliberate effort to turn it into like a babe lair, you know, like how mm-hmm. how to how to bring the unsuspecting young woman into your home and then seduce her, yeah. and that uh, much of the narrative surrounding it was also about a celebration of a certain kind of predatory yeah. heteromasculinity. Yeah, this open floor plan. Completely, mm-hmm. the open floor time. There, it's sort of like it's um, sleek, sophisticated. It was defining a kind of white heteromasculinity that was defined also by um, elite cultural capital, knowledge of art, knowledge of fine wine, and other kinds of things yeah. um, that that all got encapsulated in that architectural design. Mm-hmm. And as you say, it scripted a certain form of identity um, that had very few alternatives. If you didn't want to fully embrace this identity, then you must be a loser or you must be gay. Yeah. And at mid-20th century, these are, these are 
rather terrifying alternatives. Yeah. So it helps script people's behavior as consumers, um, as gendered, as raced individuals. Mm -hmm. I think the racial subtext in that is mm -hmm. really subtle to the point where sometimes it's easy to look at and, and not think of this right. as a race dynamic at all. But it's absolutely about hetero white masculinity and a certain predatory form that nevertheless is very celebrated um, in especially mid 20th century yeah. uh, United States culture. So post World yeah. War II, when a lot of women were inspired to actually work outside of the home, one of the biggest movements that happened within the industry was making things that existed in the home more satisfying to work with, which is like raising countertops so that your back wouldn't hurt as much when you were leaning over and doing the dishes and making vacuuming easier and making cutting meat easier with like an electric knife and things like that. And that design and improvement of those tools that were designed for women was focused around wanting them to keep them in the home, like pushing them with their identity to stay at home and not feel like they need to go out and work. The domestic uh, family home is framed in a more cozy kind of aesthetic. The chair, the barca lounger, mm -hmm. where the man is supposed, the father of the homestead is supposed to come back and relax with a yeah. cold drink after a hard day at work. Yeah. Um, and then you mentioned also the proliferation in the middle, middle of the 20th century of kitchen gadgetry mm -hmm. and domestic gadgetry designed to help the housewife feel like she could more scientifically perform her job of being the unremunerated housewife, mm -hmm. you know, that keeps the home fires burning, that creates a welcoming home, mm -hmm. that reproduces the citizenry and perhaps more importantly, the workforce, mm -hmm. right? So it's reproductive labor um, and the architecture around that is, is very deliberate, as yeah. you say. I mean, what I what I love about that. I mean, what's so interesting to me about this, and not not knowing as much about the architecture, is how well all of this fits neatly into not just social structures and cultural practices, but actual juridical history. Because originally, I mean, we still have this practice. Yes, in 2018, of when a woman gets married to a man, she takes his last name. Mm -hmm. And that's a residue of English common law doctrine of coverture, which is essentially femme couverte, which is French for covered woman. So once a woman was married, all of her political, economic, everything, her relationship to the state became covered or governed by her husband. Mm -hmm. And so everything you're saying about surveillance harkens back wow. to that original theory of hetero marriage which is all about property now of course over the you know within the past century we've seen an overhaul of that where when you get you know if you if you do get hetero married you no longer capitulate all your yeah. property over to your husband but um we still hold the residues of that thinking about married women somehow belonging to their husbands yeah. and and everything you say about architecture also makes me think about visibility and themes of surveillance that run through 
our architecture that we rarely think about. And it's not, and again, like this also speaks to the, you gestured earlier about the difference between sex and gender. It's, it's not about some intrinsic biological difference. It's yeah. about the baggage, the cultural mm-hmm. baggage we impose upon so-called biological differences yeah. so that women are then having to wear corsets or great big voluminous gowns yeah. in which they cannot occupy an ordinary quote male chair so then then the furniture and the spaces that we inhabit they become gendered as well and we don't often think about that as someone who's never delved into this subject at, at any great length, it was so intriguing for me to hear her say that we should question these very, very, very deep-seated basic assumptions that about what gender means and about what your your assumed gender means. And that's so powerful that you could really, the, the root of all this is to that those are silly assumptions that they can be dangerous and they come from weird places and and a lot can be gained from casting them aside. Yeah, just considering how it is that so many designs are based around thinking that certain people based off how they look or how you expect them to act based off of who you think they are, you're choreographing all that into your design and what happens is that that winds up filtering out a lot of the public and a lot of the comfort of a lot of the public. Yeah, it's something that's so basic that when you hear it, you I, I, at least I was like, oh, well, duh. <laughs> but that doesn't make it any less powerful. I think it's really, really, really potent. Yeah, and like what she said, it's underneath so many layers that are just so often not excavated like it's so often not talked about that once you start really unpacking it all of this light starts being brought to the surface of like i don't understand why we did this or why we continue to do this and it's because we haven't talked about it and that's why this is important Very i think that that's like yeah and that's where like a lot of these conversations i feel like are necessary because in these dialogues that i would have with people they would just i think to the everyday person, this idea of it influencing architecture at all, or the connection between architecture and these societal standards seems so separate for so many people, but in so many aspects, it really is deeply embodied, deep, 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 in a way that we don't talk about. That we don't excavate it very often. Because it's so deep, we're not really taught to think about that. And so I I guess, coming back to sort of to your project, what your project does is it really forces you to grapple with that and and so that's discomfort in a really productive and generative way because ordinarily you're not really thinking we're not trained to think about how we're occupying space and your intervention kind of forces you to do that in a, in a way that is not catastrophic, mm-hmm. in a way that doesn't undermine your actual safety, mm-hmm. um, but that really th- makes you think more deliberately about how you occupy space. Yeah, yeah, because then that can even be brought into a greater conversation around the difference between, like, white space mm-hmm. and then, you know, anything else. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> like oh my God. why different kinds of cultures have different kinds of space and why it doesn't look mm-hmm. like a sleek... Modern. And who is it inviting? Like, who is the space actively yeah. inviting? I, I, I can't help but think about the fact that over the course of the past few years in particular, we've seen so many incidents where whites have policed spaces that are at least ostensibly intended, quote, for everybody. So like the worker at Starbucks who called the white 
female work worker at Starbucks who called the police on two African-American men who were waiting for their business partner in a Starbucks a year ago. Um, and then look at all the other occasions where we're seeing, thanks to social media, yeah. <laughs> specifically white women policing space that when you just look at it, appears to be like neutral space. So like yeah. public parks where a black family was trying to, I believe, cook hot dogs and hamburgers. Yeah. And, a, and a white woman calls the police on them because she thinks they don't belong. And, and it happens every day. Almost every day there's another example of white femininity weaponizing mm-hmm. law enforcement mm-hmm. against black and brown people who are doing nothing but what everybody should be doing in the space. Mm-hmm. But like when when we talk about the racialization mm-hmm. of space, so much of that has to do with so-called neutral spaces. Often on the show, we've talked about ways that space impacts users. But what was so interesting about the examples that Caroline brought up was that it's ways that one user is weaponizing space to impact another user. The space itself is ostensibly neutral. Yeah, and thinking about the way that the intent and the design are thought to be neutral, they're executed in a neutral way. But then someone who thinks that they have more power, has the ability to claim that power, then changes the space and turns it into something else and redefines it. And then everyone else from that point on, occupying it or reading that space, sees it differently regardless of the design. The users add layers of assumption and, and culture instead of this, to the space instead of the space kind of being embodied with it originally. And what's important as designers is to understand that effect that the users have now redefined these designs that we've created and how we're going to redesign them moving forward to, in a sense, to get rid of or disengage these new presumptions that are connected with what was once thought as neutral design is now changed. So how are we going to bring it back to neutral? What are we gonna change about it to try to achieve more of a neutral, safe space for everybody? These are spaces that, like you were just saying, are ostensibly designed for everybody, like a place to hang out, a comfortable library. And then white people are taking it upon themselves to police those spaces by calling the police when they see so-called suspicious people occupying the space. And suspicious always translates into non-white people. Mm -hmm. So like to me, there's no accident there. I do not have the architectural training to really understand what's at stake there, but I, this comes back to your really wonderful question about intent. On one hand, probably all of those spaces, I know Starbucks, for instance, very deliberately designed to feel comfy and cozy and welcoming, Mm -hmm. and yet, here we are. Here we are. And other 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 spaces that are designed to be welcoming. Mm-hmm. And yet we see where white supremacy rears its ugly head by empowering white people, in this case lots and lots of white women, to call the police and say, Hey, these people don't belong. And think also the long history of how in the United States white femininity is placed on a pedestal and quote unquote protected, I'm making scare quotes, protected, Mm -hmm. which comes back to what you were saying about the house being designed to provide protection Mm -hmm. for the vulnerable family members, the the woman and her children. Um, That's very white too. Discourses of 
protection of femininity are also rooted in a very violent white supremacist history in the United States. So all of that's tied up, all that history that we deny in our nation because it's uncomfortable is the history that's coming back to bite us on the butt in, in, in the instance of these, these white women weaponizing law enforcement against black and brown people. The built environment is a huge part of it. It's a tremendous part of it, but it's not the only part of it. It's also the historical baggage that comes with all of it. And especially with our identities as consumers as we're navigating consumer spaces. Mm -hmm. um, and then obviously that structure of neoliberal corporate capitalism doesn't stand up by itself without white supremacy and patriarchy and heteronormativity and all of those other um, very powerful uh, cables holding it up. So these things are all interarticulated, but starting from that question of how one feels when one inhabits space and how one maybe thinks about ways to tweak um, and to design deliberately with inclusion in mind, I think is like, I think it's absolutely vital. So yeah. I'm glad, glad you're doing yeah. this. Yeah, no, thank you for being a part of it. I'm sure. I was so happy to be able to get this conversation that I've had with Carolyn Light so much throughout my thesis into this podcast because it's like, how do you approach this idea of designing for vulnerability? Yeah, it, it brings up a lot of questions. I know for me, probably this episode, almost more than any of the others this season has brought up a lot. Uh, we hope it's brought up a lot of questions with you. Yeah, it's important to kind of go beyond your typical boundaries of how you talk about whatever practice it is that you have. Like architecture typically just like there's too much in school. It's thought that there's too much going on to be able to get into these other theoretical ideas. And, and so it's often just brushed over. But it's important to look at them and to look at other parts of your life and question like how these other theories play a part in it and start to look at things differently and question them. Yeah, this this way of thinking, this way of understanding the world uh, and the questions it brings about can be applied to way more than just the built environment. It can be applied to your, your personal relationships, your understanding of economics, your like geopolitical thinking there, there's a lot of implications for it yeah because this is just one piece to a much bigger puzzle of like our social world and society and how it all interconnects and raises people up and brings people down and it's important to question that and look at it and so we hope that with every episode throughout the season you've left with a few more questions than you had going into it and maybe you're looking at space a little bit differently now we all occupy space. There's something yeah. universal about this yeah. is that unless we just stay home all day long, I mean, then we're home and exactly. our home is designed <laughs> in particular ways too. Yeah. We can't really escape this. So there's something very universal about this idea of design and architecture yeah, and like how it scripts our lives. So thanks again, Caroline, for sitting down with Chantel. This is a super important topic and she brought a really great viewpoint. Yeah, and someone that's the non-architect coming in and offering so much insight on a conversation about architecture and the way that we can look at everything differently. We love talking to non-architects. Love non-architects. We're all great. Come talk to us. Come talk to us. <laughs> what Builds Us is brought to you by Work Emails on the Weekend. I know you only get paid to work Monday through Friday, but what if work 
crept into your life 24-7. That relaxing Saturday afternoon would be so much better with your boss's nagging voice at you via text. So try out work emails on the weekend. The best thing in professional life since overcrowded subway cars. Want to share your thoughts or send us your gripe with the city? Send us an email at info.coalescedesign at gmail.com. Hit us up on Instagram at coalesce.design. And check out our website with great blog posts full of readings, pictures, and videos covering all the stuff we talked about today. You can find that at coalescedesign.org. What Builds Us is written and produced by us, Chantal Travely and Brian Sanford. Mixing and editing is done by me, and mastering and music is by Will Gooding. You can find more music from him at www.thorns-roses.bandcamp.com. Next week's the last episode. Crazy. We've come so far. So far. <laughs> so be sure to check back in. Last episode, we have a really great conversation with our good friend, Rob Trumbor. We really leave scale behind, and I think it's a, it's a great end cap to the season. Yeah. Going into the void of time. Time, 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 time. time, time. TikTok, TikTok. <laughs> See you then. Bye. Bye. Welcome to what built? Welcome to what? <laughs> like Will. So I know you well, like, like making little jingles. What if we got some like, you know, step clap uh, soul singers in the background here? But <laughs> what built us? Welcome. 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 <laughs>